0: Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. As you can probably tell, I am not Dr. Kat Arnie. I am instead Dr. Sally LePage. Hello. And as Kat mentioned last time, I am the new producer of Genetics Unzipped and I'll be co-presenting with Kat going forward. In today's episode, we're looking at a genetic history of the Americas, the controversies surrounding how humans first migrated to the continent, plus some of the modern day issues about how Native American genomes are used in genetic research. We're starting our story today roughly 20,000 years ago when our species Homo sapiens was spreading across the world and beginning to populate the American continents. By piecing together physical clues from the fossil record, human bones, stone tools, footprints, as well as genetic clues from both ancient and modern genomes, anthropologists are building up a picture of how and when humans moved from East Asia into North America. But there is still plenty of room for debate. Jennifer Raff is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Kansas with a dual PhD in Anthropology and Genetics, and she recently published a book called Origin, A Genetic History of the Americas, summarising what we know so far about this ancient migration. So to set the scene, I asked Jenny what was happening when humans were beginning to reach the Americas. How long ago was it? What were humans doing? What was their technology? What was their culture?
1: So these are all very big questions, and some of them we don't have all the answers to. We currently believe, those of us who work in archaeology and genetics, that the timing of the peopling of the Americas coincided or happened just after the last glacial maximum, which you can think of as the Ice Age, a period when the Earth globally was a lot colder and drier. And both of these conditions together made most of the planet very uncomfortable for humans and for animals and plants. So the last glacial maximum gradually comes to an end starting around 17,000 years ago, but it's Prior to that, started around 25,000 years ago, 24,000 years ago, something like that.
0: Okay. I'm just one of those people, when it comes to ancient history, I really struggle to put it into a timeline. I mean, it's one of those weird things where Cleopatra was closer to the space mission than she was to the pyramids or something like that. How old do we think Homo sapiens the species is?
1: That also is a very complicated question, <laughs> and I don't mean to dodge it. <laughs> the major out of Africa uh, migrations happening roughly around 100,000 years, 80,000 years, something in that area. But we actually have evidence, fossil evidence, that maybe humans like us, or at least humans looking like us and genetically resembling us, had made earlier forays out of Africa. And had actually intermingled with Neanderthals and, and possibly other humans around that time. So Again, it's a complex process and, and thinking about it as like one single major event or one single major migration is kind of the wrong way to think about it. It's probably more likely a process that happens slowly.
0: Yeah, it's not just one band of trepid explorers founding the entirety of, exactly. of non-African humans. <laughs> exactly. And the same is true of the peopling of the Americas.
1: So for a long time, scientists and and the public have thought of it as this race across the Bering Land Bridge, as soon as it became available and moved down. Down into North and South America and people of the continents very rapidly. And that those people were the bearers of what we call the Clovis technology, which is this really beautiful, elegant, fluted point, projectile point that would have gone on the ends of spears, which they used to hunt the mammoths and the, you know, mastodonts and the large megafauna.
0: You mentioned this a lot in your book, and so I looked up pictures of it. And sometimes when someone's like, Oh yeah, this is a prehistoric tool, you're like, is it? Or is it just a a rock smashed in two. These are incredibly shaped geometric objects, clearly non-natural.
1: They're stunningly beautiful, yeah. I I have no idea how you'd make one. I I couldn't. (laughs) I've tried to make stone tools. I'm terrible at it. So these stone tools appear in the archaeological record very abruptly about 13,000 years ago. And everybody thought for a long time, okay, these are the first peoples of the Americas. But it turns out that over time... Older and older archaeological sites start to be identified, and there's huge controversies about all of them, which I go into excruciating detail in my book about. (laughs) And the upshot is the combination of archaeology and genetics shows us that, in fact, the Clovis peoples were not the first people in the Americas, that people had gotten there earlier, and it was a much more complex process than these older models would have led us to believe. How much earlier? That's the million-dollar question right now. I think the majority of evidence supports a peopling as soon as the West Coast would have been ice free. So by boat along the West Coast, sometime around 16,000, 17,000 years ago, genetics matches that. We see increases in population size and genetic diversity expanding about the same period of time. But there are some questions about that because very recently, a number of sites that potentially predate that period have been identified. And they all have varying degrees of support from archaeologists. Some are kind of ambiguous. Like you mentioned, we have these broken rocks. And are they actually tools shaped by humans? Were they broken by natural processes? But there's one site in particular that I am really fascinated by that was just discovered or at least just published just as I was wrapping up this book. This is the White Sands Locality 2 site. And this site is actually in the White Sands Park in New Mexico. It's a really amazing site that actually contains trackways from humans that have been dated by means of these little seeds embedded in the footprints to potentially 23 to 25,000 years ago. Now that would have been the height of the last glacial maximum. There would have been a massive ice sheet covering North America, mostly Canada. It wouldn't have extended as far down as New Mexico, but that way should have been blocked. And so if these dates are correct and not everybody thinks they are, but if they are correct, it means people must have gotten into North America before those ice sheets fused. So sometime before 25,000 years ago. And that opens up this whole new avenue of exploration and understanding in both the archaeological record and genetics.
0: That's doubling the length of time that we originally thought they were in America. Absolutely. It really makes for a whole new story. If we're looking anywhere, this huge range between 15 and 25,000 years ago, roughly, that still means that for a good 80, 90% of the time that humans have been on planet Earth as modern humans, they haven't been in the Americas. How does this coincide? So you mentioned they've got tools, you mentioned there were possibly boats. So how are we doing with like, stone tools? How are we doing with clothing, fire? What does it look like to be a human maybe 20,000 years ago?
1: Great question. So we know they definitely had fire. Fire was
0: harnessed as a
1: human tool much, much earlier than this. They had tailored clothing. Archaeologists have found evidence of needles as early as dating to around 30,000 years ago, the Upper Paleolithic in Siberia. And in fact, some archaeologists have speculated that it is the presence of this sewing needle, the actual ability to make tailored clothing, which allowed humans like us, uh, anatomically modern Homo sapiens, to live above the Arctic Circle, whereas our kin, Neanderthals and Denisovans, don't appear to have ever done so. And we don't see that they have some of these same technologies. Even though physically, Neanderthals were far better adapted to living in cold conditions than our species, our kind of human, was at the same time point. By this time, by 30,000 years ago, setting the stage for the peopling of the Americas, anatomically modern Homo sapiens still showed physical adaptations similar for warmer environments, warmer climates. And so we had tailored clothing. We had hunting technologies that included a diverse toolkit made of stone. We had art. We had very sophisticated culture and art. These are all technological and um, artistic attributes that we see in the upper Paleolithic cultures of Siberia, which is where a lot of the ancestry from Native Americans likely came.
0: Have we got bows and arrows? Are we using
1: spears? Spears at this point, yeah. Bows (laughs) and arrows were invented later. And
0: is farming around?
1: Definitely not. Farming is a much more recent development that occurred at various places independently around the world. In the Americas, you start to see intensive maize agriculture doesn't emerge in North America until... Oh, a little bit before 1,000 years ago. Okay, so qu- quite recent. Much more recent, okay. yeah. And, and even
0: earlier in, in Mesoamerica and South America. And have we got boats? Presumably that's quite important when you're talking about human migration. Yeah,
1: we don't have direct evidence of boats in the archaeological record at this point for the Americas, but the expectation is that people were using boats certainly by 13,000 years ago. There's evidence that people had reached islands that they could not have done so off the West Coast unless they had boats. And the strong genetic signal of very, very rapid diversification and expansion matches a expansion by boat much faster than a slower overland route would have resulted in so you see people from North America and and South America genetically extremely similar to one another which could only have happened in this very short period of time if they had been moving rapidly and in addition to that we also infer the presence of boats because the west coast of North America became ice free much earlier than the overland route would have been and you see the expansion of people reaching sites as far south as South America. And they could only have done that if they traveled by boat along the West Coast.
0: This is one of the things I was going to ask because in my very basic human evolution lectures, I remember having this map. You've got humans coming out of Africa, some turning left into Europe, some turning right through Arab Peninsula, through India, China, following the coast. And then that group splits, half go into Australian direction. And then the other half keep going north and then across the Bering Strait. And so I'm imagining this tiny group of humans huddling on a pretty flimsy glacier, a little block of ice that's only there temporarily, and then rushing across to get to North America, to Alaska and Canada. Is any of that correct? No, not really. (laughs) Not
1: anymore. Well, I I like to invite people to think about the peopling of the Americas as a, a very dynamic, complex process done by populations that would have probably been a lot larger than you would have been led to believe from schoolwork. One of the prime candidates for the region where people might have waited out the last glacial maximum before dispersing into the Americas is actually the central part of Beringia, the southern coast of the central part of Beringia, which, of course, today is underwater. I was going to say, where's Beringia? (laughs) Yeah, it's the land connection between Asia and North America, or what was land connection. Now it's the Bering Strait. But during the last glacial maximum, so much water was bound up in these massive ice sheets that covered huge swaths of North America and other continents that the sea would have been much lower than it is today. And we don't have, unfortunately, direct archaeological evidence of people living in this region where we think they might have lived. We have paleoclimactic reconstructions showing us the southern coast of central Beringia, would have been a pretty decent place to live at this time.
0: What, without ice covering the land?
1: Yeah, definitely ice-free. It would have had a warmer climate, a wetter climate, thanks to the proximity of the ocean. And also there would have been plants growing there, lots of animals. So this is a really prime location for where people could have been. And we know that they were isolated from all other populations for a period of a few thousand years. The genomes show us this. But unfortunately we can't test this directly, archeologically, because it's underwater. So that's a bit of a problem. But if people were, were actually living here as our models suggest, This suggests to us that, you know, thinking about the Bering Land Bridge as this piece of land that you race across, right, to get from Asia to North America is kind of the wrong way of thinking about it. It wasn't a bridge. It was a homeland that people would have lived in and been isolated from. And a pleasant one. Well. One where there's food to hunt. Pleasant relatively, yes. But uh, certainly they would have been able to adapt to this environment and develop these cultural and this cultural knowledge and these technological adaptations for a marine environment, which would have then, we think, hypothetically expect, allow them to really thrive as they move along the West Coast and move southward down as far as South America, right? You would have encountered similar environments there. Following that, people could have moved inland and developed adaptations and knowledge and relationships with land and animals all across the Americas in a more slower diffusion.
0: Now, you've mentioned that you're looking at genomic evidence here, and obviously there's the archaeological evidence, the physical evidence of the spearheads. How can you infer genetic information from such old groups? Are you directly getting ancient DNA from ancient bones, or are you looking at modern populations and then working backwards? Great question.
1: Um, And I have to stress, this is not my research. (laughs) This is the work of many, many people and lab groups. (laughs) The work that's been done has been a combination of straight population genetics from living peoples, but also, and crucially, genomes from ancient peoples dating as far, and individuals mostly, dating from various time points throughout this long process. And so some of the earliest genomes that we can look at are from Asia, dating to 45,000 years ago. Some really crucial ones were sequenced from teeth that children lost, just shed naturally, at the Yana River site in Siberia. And those date to about 30,000 years ago.
0: And one of the lovely things you do in your book is to, to really set the scene. Because like, you can imagine, oh yeah, we've got this tooth in this museum. Firstly, there's the amazing fact that the DNA has survived enough for us to sequence. But you're like, but that was a human that lost that tooth. That was a child mm-hmm. who their tooth has become separated from their skull. So what was happening at that time? In it, and it really, to use a, an obvious word here, but it humanizes that human story. Thank you. Yeah, that was one of the things I really
1: wanted to do in this book was to get across these, the fact that these are not just genomes, they're not just samples. I always hate it when people use the word specimen to refer to human ancestors. I, oh, it drives me crazy.
0: They've probably got numbers
1: attached to them. Oh, it's horrible. Bone 4521B. Yeah, Absolutely. It's a really gross and embarrassing aspect of the history of our field, this sort of detachment from, from the humanity of these people. I do imagine what the lives of these people would have been like. And so many of them were children. And so trying to talk about their the impact of their genomes, but also who they were or who I imagine them to be, because of course, we don't know who they really were. It, it was important to me to do that. And certainly, Because so many of them were children at the same age as my my son, my little toddler, who's now a preschooler, when I was writing this book, it was very hard sometimes to write about these children and what their DNA has shown us. And at the same time, it's also tricky because, of course, these are the ancestors of people who, you know, I don't belong to that group, right? I'm not Native American. And so in telling the story of these ancestors, you know, it was really important for me to try to do it respectfully. And I was really lucky to have the help Uh, and advice of many colleagues who are Indigenous to kind of help me shape these.
0: That was Jennifer Raff from the University of Kansas, and her book, Origin, a Genetic History of the Americas, just came out earlier this month. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on twitter at geneticsunzip and while you're at it why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show as we heard from jenny humans began to populate the americas around 15 to 25000 years ago and those are the ancestors of modern day native americans One strand of evidence that anthropologists have used to uncover this story is population genetics on these Native American descendants. Sadly, as is often the case in the history of genetics, racism has left its mark on the field and its effects are still being felt in modern genetics research. Indigenous people who have been marginalised, oppressed and exploited by white European colonists for the past few centuries have seen a surge of interest from multinational pharmaceutical companies who want to use their genetic data. Understandably, many see genetic research as just yet another area where non-native parties want to profit from native communities with little thought for how their research will benefit those communities. To learn more about how Indigenous people are involved in genetics research, I sat down with Crystal Sosi, a Native American geneticist and ethicist at Vanderbilt University. She's also a co-founder of the Native Biodata Consortium, a Native American-run genetic biobank promoting research that benefits Indigenous peoples. To begin with, I asked Crystal to tell me a bit more about how Native American genomes have been used in the past and why so many multinational corporations are so interested in indigenous genetics.
2: There's this open push in what we call the big data era to just collect more and more genomic data across many diverse populations. It sounds good on paper, but we also have to realize that there have been earlier large-scale diversity projects, like the Human Genome Diversity Project and 1,000 Genomes, and also National Geographic had the Genographic Project, which their entire missions were to collect indigenous DNA and biomarkers, and this is language that the Human Genome Diversity Project used before Indigenous peoples vanished. Oh, wow. <laughs> so not really caring about the colonial factors relating to
0: the disempowerment and disenfranchisement rights of our peoples, but more... It's like we, we care more about protecting your genome than we do about protecting the people themselves. Yes, and their exactly. Culture.
2: So this is a perfect example of, you know, science for whose interest and whose benefit. Is it for the Indigenous peoples that are providing the DNA or is it for this global 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 depiction of a global story that really benefits whom certainly not us, right? In terms of the health aspect, know there's also this huge push for collecting genomes across diverse populations and if we're not careful it can evoke some of those same questions like who are we collecting this data for and for whose benefit and there's a lot of private interests in collecting genomes from diverse populations and from my perspective as an indigenous person who has grown up in less than affluent conditions my understanding is that Human geneticists, in particular, tend to overprioritize the contribution of DNA and genomic information towards health disparities. And I would like to see more attention to structural factors related to health. So that's where my interest is in terms of starting and help co-founding an indigenous biological data repository was not to just ensure that data collected from indigenous peoples was going to benefit indigenous peoples, but also that we're not just prioritizing biological factors uh, related to health, but also looking at Colonial factors, cultural factors, socioeconomic factors contributing to health. These types of research questions are best interrogated by Indigenous peoples and scientists who came from these settings and these environments. Because what I found is working with non Indigenous scientists who don't have this type of perspective, they come in with their own biases and their own interests and their own research agendas,
0: and it doesn't always service the Indigenous peoples. It seems like everybody wants a piece of native american dna it seems like it's the big new thing that all of the big pharma companies and big genetic companies are like oh if only we could have some native american genomes we could make either such a lot of money or such a great deal of benefit to the world what is it about native american dna that they think is so special that everybody wants we are
2: considered an untapped undiscovered resource so here we have language of discovery yeah. tied with the disenfranchisement and usurpment of our information so if you think about it in terms of our knowledge of genetics and genetic factors contributing to disease the lowest hanging fruit has already been picked right we have a Wealth of knowledge of Mendelian factors contributing to disease, and also now with over a decade of genome-wide association studies technologies, we have some knowledge of common variants that relate to common diseases. The next big blockbuster drugs are going to be in smaller, untested populations, like indigenous peoples and peoples with rare variants. And there's also this notion of biological purity that unfortunately underpins some of these searches. You know, I'm a U.S. Indigenous researcher, so a lot of my research is focused in the U.S. context. So if we look again in the U.S. construct, there's a lot of genetic admixture or a lot of movement among populations, and particularly in the southeastern and southern portion of the U.S., and a lot of more urban natives who have been able to intermix with other outside, so to speak, groups, right? Those populations are not really of interest to scientists. What they're interested in are peoples in the Southwest, like mine, my, my community, uh, the Navajo Nation, because we've been able to retain for just due to our geography and our histories, large tracts of our own homelands, and we've been able to retain our culture. So there's a lot of interest in us studying Southwestern U.S. Indigenous peoples because we're quote, biologically pure.
0: (laughs) Oh, that sounds so horrible. I worked on fruit flies, and that sounds like the sort of thing I would say about a fruit fly line. Exactly, exactly. It gets into really dangerous
2: notions of conflating genetics and race, and really gets into some of these dangerous connotations and connections. And there's a lot of interest, again, with ancestral (laughs) DNA. Because again,
0: unfortunately, there's just these eugenic notions of of genetic purity that are involved. It's it's one of those things in genetics that we just can't get away from as a field. It's it's such a stubborn idea. Uh, uh, Yes, exactly, exactly. One thing I wanted to ask you about, just to kind of break down this link between rare genomes, a smaller population size, and that being valuable, How is that link there? So sure, we know all about white European genomes. We kind of understand if certain genes are related to certain diseases. Hypothetically, what is it that these companies are thinking? Is it, oh, that maybe these populations will have genetic traits that make them less likely to get some of these diseases? What is it that they're looking for? To be honest, it's strange um,
2: because it's a lot of drug companies their bottom line is profit right and what they're looking for is not necessarily genetic variants that are found in indigenous communities that are associated with diseases that affect indigenous peoples because that wouldn't be really a good profit model for them because why why would they want to devote resources and money towards studying a condition that only affects indigenous peoples who constitute between roughly according to
0: whatever estimate you use, two to four percent of the population
2: you know that doesn't make
0: sense And presumably for them not the richest two to four percent of the population either
2: uh, yes unfortunately that's the other thing that goes unsaid but when i've had meetings with some pharmaceutical representatives they're interested in looking at indigenous peoples to find undiscovered, untapped variants in indigenous peoples for conditions that also affect non-indigenous peoples. So, for instance, there has been a a large documented history of utilizing indigenous people's DNA, not to just study type 2 diabetes, but also type 1 diabetes, which doesn't even affect indigenous peoples by and large. It largely affects people of European descent.
0: I was going to say, that sounds great. Everyone... Gets, I didn't know that, that it wasn't an issue so much in those populations.
2: <laughs> Not so much, no. But there's still interest in looking at indigenous genomes for just common conditions that affect not only Indigenous peoples, but also the dominant population as well. If we really want to tackle health disparities, we really should be studying conditions that predominantly affect Indigenous peoples, right? But that's not how these profit models are generated. It seems like there's interest in utilising Indigenous variants to not just study conditions that affect Native peoples, but also largely would be of interest to non-Indigenous peoples, and that's extractive.
0: They're very focused on collecting a a diversity of genomes, but then only applying it to a very non-diverse group of diseases and group of people that it's benefiting.
2: That is a very cynical view. And some of my conversations by drug pharma representatives have informed that decision. So, I mean, that's not all of research. A lot of researchers do have interest in actually studying health disparities in, in terms of conditions that disproportionately affect our
0: peoples and history gives you reason to be concerned
2: exactly exactly (laughs) ultimately beyond all of this really what we should be pushing for is intellectual property owned by the communities that provide the data
0: yeah and that's part of what native biodata this consortium wants to do it seems to be both storing the data and promoting the research on it so firstly like what does it look like? Is it a building? Is it a group of people? (laughs) Explain (laughs) to me what it is.
2: So we do have facilities that are located on tribal lands. And that is really important because that builds trust because local tribal communities can actually see a physical structure and know where the data is being held. And it's within tribal jurisdictions. The consortium part of it is the fact that we do partner with other Indigenous communities who are interested in also starting maybe their own biological and data repositories or would like to partner with our facilities and also researchers. It's really more about building a trust network of allies that we know
0: will be pursuing
2: research in a way that's equitable and beneficial to tribes.
0: And what is the interesting research that's going on at the moment? that you're like, yes, this is the kind of research we need more of.
2: Right now, we have started a tribal public health surveillance program um, so that we can do local COVID testing. We we also have a long-term rheumatoid arthritis study that has been ongoing within the communities that we're continuing to expand upon and also starting to branch off into some of forensic spaces. So providing an alternative to some missing and murdered indigenous peoples in terms of aiding in their their return to, to communities. Um, so I think that's about all I can publicly disclose at the moment.
0: I, I mean it, it just goes to show what a breadth of work that your consortium is focusing on and that it's not just the pure genetic side of things either. It's it's more about the overall health rather than just genetics.
2: Exactly. We also do have a huge environmental component. So indigenous peoples are stewards of over 70% of the world's biodiversity, and there's a lot of interest from agronomists for reintroducing genetic diversity into monocultures and utilizing indigenous knowledge as an indigenous curated species for reintroducing that genetic diversity as well. So there's a lot of environmental stewardship and protection in, in those questions as well.
0: But it's such an interesting aspect that I completely hadn't thought of, which is not just the human diversity that you've got, but the, the diversity of crops and, and animals. And then it,
2: even it becomes a little bit more intricately because there's a lot of interest in microbiome diversity as well. There was an article that came out recently about the disappearing microbiome and how certain scientists are looking to indigenous populations as being pre-industrial or quote pre-modern so like already having this antiquated notion of indigenous peoples as not being modern or even you've never had a
0: loaf of white bread and a diet coke ever (laughs) in your life
2: and so again indigenous peoples are considered this like fountain of of you know, microbiome uh, diversity, just as there is interest in like using indigenous peoples as like sources of ancestral, so to speak, microbiome data. Now you also see this um, in parallel to looking at our ancestors' genomic information as perhaps unlocking some sort of information that relates to chronic and common illnesses in today's contemporary population. So a lot of ancient DNA research is actually looking to our ancestors for insight into human health conditions that affect peoples today. It
0: blows my mind. I mean, it still blows my mind that we can get enough DNA from such old bones that we can construct a genome and just be like, yeah, this person was here. They then their family moved here. But then to be looking at genetic data on such a fine level, you can look at diseases.
2: There's this distinction that's arbitrary about what constitutes human versus non-human uh, subjects' DNA. And it's interesting that ancestors, our ancestors are considered non-human subjects. They are, they are literally human, yet they wait, are- constitu- Wait, when you say
0: they're considered non-human, what do, who considers them that? Uh,
2: in Institutional review boards consider only living human participants as being able to consent to research. And those are the research types of studies that have to undergo ethical review. Research on non-living persons is considered a non-human subjects research and therefore doesn't have to go undergo ethical review. So this is actually considered like a blind spot in terms of human paleogenomic uh, research. And because now, you know, this is a way of looking at human genomic information without having to go through consent processes. You know, there's a lot of push for indigenous researchers to seek consent from descendant communities, but people move. And also the colonial geographic Boundaries of what constitutes non indigenous land versus indigenous land is recent compared to the lifespan of our ancestors. It's just arbitrary, is, is, is the word that I keep circling around. And these are larger ethical considerations that are still relatively nascent and still being explored in ancient DNA. And that also contributes to some of the huge interest in collectivizing our ancestors and keeping them under curated private collections, as opposed to within the domain of indigenous communities, so that this research progress, so to speak, goes unimpeded so we have to really think about this in terms of arbitrary ethical legal guidelines versus like are we actually doing our due diligence to providing care to our ancestors and really thinking about the implications of the research for Indigenous peoples
0: that are living today. That was Crystal Sosi from Vanderbilt University. That's all for now. Thanks to both Jennifer Raff and Crystal Sosy for their illuminating insight into this topic. We'll be back next time taking a look at the secret lives of cancer cells. We all know that sex cells, but Kat will be finding out about the astonishing discovery that not only do cancer cells have sex with each other, but also that tumours with XX chromosomes behave differently to tumours with XY chromosomes. Trust me, you won't want to miss it. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com and you can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Dr Sally LePage. It's created by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learner societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle.